You may be busy doing something while you listen to this podcast, but you're never too busy to eat healthy if you eat Vite Ramen. This podcast is sponsored by Vite Ramen. Show support for a sponsor that supports Moore's Law is Dead at the link in the description. And if you do, make sure you use offer code BROKENSILICON. And you can also support Moore's Law is Dead if you need Windows keys or software at cdkeyoffer.com. If you go there, also use the code BROKENSILICON for 25% off Windows keys or Die Shrink for 3% off everything else on the website. All right, now let's get on with the show. Welcome to Broken Silicon, a gaming hardware podcast. I am your host, Tom, and I'm joined today by one of those guests where I'd say a significant portion of the fans of Moore's Law is Dead when I announce you're coming on celebrate in the streets because you have a, I mean, a level of insight. I mean, frankly, very few people on earth have and very few people on earth come on to a usually gaming, but sometimes server podcast to give some insight to that I just think is sorely missed, especially if you get stuck in this bubble of like talking about, oh, just this thing about the PS5, this thing about this graphics card, and you miss how it all actually works. But please introduce yourself. Sure. Thanks a lot. Nice to talk to you again. Uh, my name is Daniel Nenny. I've been in the semiconductor industry for 40 years, so I'm very active in the ecosystem. Uh, currently, for the last 10 years, I've done mergers and acquisitions, so M&A with uh, companies, uh, IP, EDA, etc., companies inside the ecosystem. I work on getting them funding. I work on planning their exit and then executing exits. So I've done about uh, eight exits in the last 10 years, and I got a couple more in process. So that gives me some perspective. Um, I'm also the founder of SemiWiki.com, which is an open forum for semiconductor professionals. Uh, we currently have over 240,000 registered members. So we, I started the company in about uh, 12 years ago. And the reason is I didn't feel semiconductors were getting a fair shake in the media. And so we mm. were the first semiconductor blogging site. And there's a lot of imitators now. But uh, I think the semiconductor industry gets more than their fair share of, of media now. But it's not necessarily accurate. So myself and about a dozen other uh, writers on SemiWiki we all have master's degrees. Some of them have PhDs. We all have 20 to 30 or more years experience. So we're not journalists, but we can speak to the validity of tools and technology and we can answer whatever questions you have for sure. Mm-hmm. And, and I really wish there were more websites like this as well, because I find, you know, I do Broken Silicon every episode. Every other episode is like a news wrap up of the past two weeks of news. And I'll depending on which website I'm quoting from, if it's a gaming first website, they usually know half of the stuff well, but are completely missing the business end. And if I quote from someone like, I don't know, Yahoo News or CNN or something, they'll talk about the business, the money numbers, but then they'll have these descriptions of what CPUs are in parentheses that are half the time wrong. Like they like when they try to describe why this new thing from TSMC is important, they will just describe it completely incorrectly. There's been times mid like article, like, you know, like summary that I've 
copied from Reuters or something that I with Dan on the news episodes where we'll just start laughing mid sentence and go, well, you can tell this doesn't come from a semiconductor website with that summary there. But, you know, so it, it really is an asset. But, um, you know, you've been on a couple times before. There's a lot more backstory talk about where you come from and really the early days of foundries and moving forward. I'd really recommend to anyone who hasn't listened to those episodes, like listen to that. Uh, the first two, because they kind of just lead into each other. But one thing we talked about last time you were on that I thought we had to touch on again is the shortages, because it was funny, um, or at least interesting, maybe not funny, but the last time you were on, we were, you know, it was late 2021. So we were right in the thick, like the middle of the pandemic shortages. And we were both kind of giving our input on when we thought it would end. And it seemed like we both mostly agreed by the end of 2022, these shortages are pretty much going to be done or certainly significantly better than what they were then to the point that a lot of people would feel like they're done. Like, I, I was just wondering now that we're kind of getting into some more normalcy, although certainly there's still shortages on some things here and there. Um, how would you summarize what caused the shortages between 2020 to 2022 and really what made them start being alleviated? Well, you know, we know now, and uh, it was always my premise that the shortage uh, narrative was a false narrative. You know, we, we had manufacturing capacity, and we do have manufacturing capacity that, you know, can fulfill all the needs we have today. You know, but what happened was um, when the pandemic hit, a lot of companies canceled their orders for manufacturing. Mm -hmm. So the utilization of our manufacturing uh, facilities went from 90% to 70 to 60%. And when you turn off a manufacturing facility for a year, you can't make that up, right? Um, you have to restart, and it takes a while, and and then then you start get back up to ninety to one hundred percent manufacturing, but you lost a lot of product, and so that's really what happened is people canceled, and the automotive companies, you know, are a good example because we all felt that, but um, in the meantime, demand went up because people were working at home, right? So we're buying PCs, we're buying all sorts of things. I didn't think people would be buying a lot of cars during the pandemic, but they did. Um, I actually bought a couple cars for my kids. And so, you know, it, it was a double double effect, right? For one side, we canceled manufacturing. Another side, we got a ton of orders. And that's what caused the shortages. You know, the funny thing is, is people turn that into, oh, we have a manufacturing shortage. We have to manu build more manufacturing. And it just wasn't the case. And now we're saying, oh, we have to have manufacturing, you know, in our backyard, which is kind of funny. And I'm all for it, you know. Um, I, I don't mind having fabs in the United States. I think it's kind of cool. But, uh, uh, you know, when I started in this industry, I started in a fab and this was, you know, 40 years ago. And the reason why the fabs left Silicon Valley is because they polluted the hell out of the place. So mm. the EPA threw us out. And, you know, everybody says, well, it was cheaper. But sure, it was cheaper because there were no pollution standards in, in China and Asia. So, uh, you know, that's, that's what happened. And bringing it back, you know, semiconductors is much more cleaner. Um, you know, they do a lot of green stuff, uh, a lot of reclamation of water and such. So it's not a, as bad of a deal as it was 40 years ago, but it's going to cost more. And that's fine, too. Uh, but, you know, we're going to pay for it. Right. The, the consumer ends up paying for the extra cost. But, you know, at some point in time, we're just going to have so much manufacturing and, uh, you know, then maybe prices will go down. Who knows? Yeah, well, I mean, and they're already starting to go down um, yeah, with the shortages thing, I think. My favorite thing to point to, and there's certainly a few of these ex types of examples, is, you know, everyone was scared. So they stopped making basically everything as much. 
And one of those things being cars and they're like, well, people will buy less cars. And it's like, well, now you told people they can't fly. So no, now everyone's going to buy cars, you know? Oh, well, people will probably buy less. I mean, just to, for the subjects of this channel, less gaming devices. Well, no, now people can't travel as much or go to movie theater. So maybe they want to play video games this fall. Like it is, I, I, I guess I do kind of have like just one thing to add to that subject then like how do you feel in general just about i think sometimes how much importance or credit we give to the ability of some of these forecasters to predict things when something as fundamental as people inside can't fly now need car and need computer was miss missed like that is a you'd think if your whole job is to sit there and philosophize about what might happen that might be the first thing you conclude is Actually, people are going to buy less of this and more of this, and then that's going to end, and they're going to use them a lot less, and then we're going to have a glut of products, which we're seeing prices just fall apart in PC right now. Yeah. Well, you know what happened was um, people panicked, and they started double, triple ordering for the chip level, you know, top of the chips. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, if you follow TSMC, they, they quite, you know, blankly said, we have record inventories in our customers. And they've been saying that for the last six months to a year. And so people built up their inventories and that gave us a big year, you know, in 2021 and, and 2022 was pretty good. Uh, but I think we grew 26% in 2021, which is a god awful amount. Our industry has never experienced that. So you have to wonder, you know, what's going to happen after that. And of course, we're going to have a, a somewhat of a crash because people just trip, double tripled order and now they're using those inventories. The thing about cars, and um, you know, I'm also a pilot, and I I bought a boat uh, in the beginning of the pandemic because I wasn't able to travel. And the electronics in cars and airplanes and boats are more modular. So you know, I was buying electronics, but they had modular uh, components rather than a chip. So mm -hmm. in a car, you have these modules that do take care of your brakes and all the other parts of your car. So it has to go from chip to a module, a subsystem to the car. And so there's extra steps involved and that takes a lot more time. And so that's why cars lag the rest of the industry and boats. I mean, I waited a year for a boat and I waited a long time for my electronics and radar and such. Uh, but you know, just the chips themselves, we, we freed those up, but there's a long well, wait time to get those into the subsystem and then get those subsystems into consumers. Um, I think it's over now as far as the chip definitely shortages mm -hmm. over, it's been over for a while. But now I think we're seeing the subsystems, uh, you know, are, have caught up. So I, I think we're back to normal per se. Unfortunately, we have an economic issue right now, right? The, the inflation and maybe a recession, I think we've talked ourselves into. So uh, even my family, you know, we're, we're spending less money just to see what's going to happen uh, coming up in the next year. But um, yeah, so that, that's what you've seen. You know, it's a roller coaster, right? So we, we went down and then we went up and now we're going to go down again. That's very predictable. The industry's done it quite a few times. Uh, so it's just something we have to ride out. Yeah. You know, that was something I remember we talked about too, the last time you were on is the, the pessimism. I think, you know, I think what happened for like gamers during the pandemic shortages is they finally paid attention because I mean, you know, people were inside more. They wanted these things. They've always been able to buy these things. Now they couldn't. And so they finally started paying attention to it. And I think it all seems so shocking, you know, that you couldn't get something because they've never cared. I think people just cared more than they did before. But 
we discussed that there's been shortages many, 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 many times of all mm-hmm. different types of devices for decades. And that this really wasn't new. Maybe, maybe they said more of a micro, you know, like a microscope over it because people actually really did want these things this time. Whereas before they were always, you know, willing to wait a month or something. Yeah. I think the media has, has helped in that because it's much more apparent, right? So semiconductors are front page news. Now they didn't used to be right. Nobody even knew what one was, but now you have the president of the United States, you know, carrying around these wafers saying, Hey, look, I got chips. So, you know, uh, we're, we're just more front page news and, you know, so on SemiWiki, we, we do blogs, uh, primarily, but, um, we also do webinars and we write books, you know, I've written a few books and I did one on the history of the semiconductor industry, um, mm-hmm. a few years back and it was a bestseller. And, and I've seen a huge surge of people buying that book just over the last two years because of all the press and people wanting to know what's a semiconductor and why can't I buy cars? And so, you know, the media, it's, it's part, partly to blame or partly to credit. Um, people really know how important semiconductors are, not just in our homes, but, you know, for the whole world. Well, you know, we're dancing around a subject here that I was going to get to later, but I don't see why we don't just get to it now. Uh, QH Freddy writes in and he asks, do you think the West, in quotes, can really ever be self-sufficient when it comes to semiconductors as the politicians seem to want to make it? Is there really a desire to go into passives and PCBs? Can we ever make a self-sufficient electronics industry in terms of raw materials? Do we have enough young people with the skill or willing to learn the skills even here to run all the things that would be required to support this? And I think one thing I'd like to add on to that is just, and this is something I've discussed a lot, like with contacts behind the scenes is it's not just the fabs. We bring the fabs here. It's, you know, if you wanted to make a lot of these graphics cards in the United States, like where's the heatsink companies? Where's, you know, the packaging company that assembles it all together? Like there's so much that would go into truly making a laptop from the ground or, you know, Xbox from the ground up just in the U.S. I, I, do you think this is a realistic goal? No. No. You know, it, it's, it used to be happen in the, in the United States, right? Because we invented semiconductors and everything was done in the United States. But there's a lot more to making semiconductors now than there was before. You know, a lot more equipment. And a lot of these equipment companies are not in the U.S. So there's equipment that we can't live without. That's not built in the U.S. And us building that equipment in the U.S. is just not going to happen. Um, that's just one example. But it's an ecosystem and it's a worldwide ecosystem. You know, before the pandemic, I traveled all over the world, uh, you know, working on different ecosystem uh, parts and, you know, doing acquisitions and, and, and such. And it just taught me that, you know, it truly is a worldwide ecosystem. And if you take away any part, any one part, we're, we're going to fail. And, you know, trying to replicate that within one country I mean, good luck. I, th- I think if you did, United States would probably have the best chances. But look at China. Mm. They spent hundreds of billions and billions of dollars trying to do this, just this exact thing. And they've just failed. And, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, they've certainly put the money into it, which we haven't. Um, they certainly have talent. It's just, it takes so much. And one of the challenges is the semiconductor industry moves so fast. So, you know, China caught up to, you know, maybe 20 years ago, and but they're, they're still uh, stuck in a time warp. They haven't really been successful with FinFETs. You know, we've had FinFETs for 10 years. In fact, we're moving on to the next technology. So, um, you know, I just don't think anybody can do it. But if I was to bet on somebody doing it, it would probably be the U.S. We have a lot of natural advantages in terms of, like, our resources, the, the size of the United States. I mean, 
I guess the the follow up question I would then have is, I mean, the short answer is no. What do you think is a realistic goal? Like maybe the com- combination of a few dozen countries could replicate what's being done if you take Asia and Eastern Europe, Western Europe, the U.S., South America into account. Like, is that the realistic goal is maybe just we can cut out half of the places we're getting stuff from, but we're never really all going to get it from one country? Yeah, and, and that's kind of what we're doing now is we're reducing the number of dependencies. And so that that's something that we can do. And, you know, we ultimately we could do it, but not in my lifetime, right? It's going to mm. take 10, 20, 30, 40 years, you know, before we even get close. And that's saying if we could, and it all depends on new technology. Where is it coming from, right? We just don't know. Um, certainly the U.S. is energized now. They, you know, people are... Uh, educating themselves on electronics. Uh, you know, everybody is, is aware of, of the semiconductor industry. So hopefully that uh, builds a base, a talent pool base uh, that will allow us to expand and maybe one day be self-sufficient. But um, I agree. It's a good goal. You always want to work towards a big goal, but, you know, be realistic. It's going to take some time. Mm-hmm. Samantha Vimes writes in and asks, what has been the impact of the CHIPS Act so far? Are the new fabs being constructed in the U.S. enough to change the manufacturing landscape? Well, you know, the CHIPS Act hasn't done anything yet. Uh, that money has not been mm. distributed. And I think it's, it's confused people. And, you know, it's got a lot of strings attached. So uh, it, I don't even really understand the thing uh, altogether. I, I've read about it. I've done a lot of interviews. You know, I have a podcast as well. And I've interviewed a dozen different people uh, on this exact topic. And nobody really knows how it's going to shape out. And it's evolving. But, um, you know, TSMC building a, a megafab or a gigafab in Arizona is a huge, huge thing. And mm-hmm. now they're looking at building in Europe. They're building in Japan. I think that is uh, going to change the face of manufacturing. You know, it's a very good thing. But again, it's going to cost more. So mm-hmm. that's something we're going to have to uh, deal with. We're going to have to live with. But I think it's a very good thing. And, you know, it's interesting is if you look at the fab openings in Arizona that they just did last year. Who, who was at that fab opening? Yes, uh, the president of the United States were there, but the CEOs of Apple, the CEOs of NVIDIA, of AMD, of all TSMC's top customers, they wanted the fab in the U.S. And they all came out and said, yes, we're going to use a U.S. fab. But, you know, that fab is going is gonna, is gonna to not going to be leading edge, right? Mm-hmm. It's four nanometer and it's going to be three nanometer, but TSMC is already shipping three nanometer from Taiwan. But it's important for these CEOs to say, hey, you know, we can manufacture in the United States. So um, I think I think it's a good thing. But the other thing you should know is that those CEOs that participate in this opening, they have a lot of political power, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, these, these are key players in the technology sector, which is an important part of anybody's political base. So, you know, the politicians pandering to these people and supporting TSMC, it, it's a very big thing. So that that's politics, which I don't understand too much, but it's just an observation that TSMC has a huge uh, base of people that are going to support them in this. Mm-hmm. Well, you you said something for an animator, and that is one of the opening questions I wanted to eventually get to, just to set a baseline of understanding. It's something I'm sure we've discussed a dozen times, but I think is still maybe not talked about enough in what it really means. Alex Slaughter writes in and asks, Hi, Tom and Daniel. I've read that the measurements applied to nodes such as 4 nanometer, for example, don't really measure transistor size anymore. 
What do they measure? Is it literally all just marketing or are there differences between nodes that claim to be the same sizes that they're actually still referencing this point when they call a node a given name? If so, what are they? Yeah, so we're, we're just making things up now. Um, when we started, okay, we, used to, we, we used to use these flat transistors, planar transistors, and you could measure them. And so 28 nanometer is actually 28 nanometer uh, transistor length. But when we went to FinFETs, they're three-dimensional, right? They have fins, th thus the name FinFET. So we don't have a measurement anymore. You know, the transistors are smaller, but they're taller, right? They have these fins. So we just make it up now. So that started at uh, 16 nanometer and 14 nanometer and 12. And, and you know, TSMC has done a pretty good job of leading the way. Intel now uses the same uh, methodology for, for naming their processes. But instead of saying 14 nanometer plus and plus plus and plus plus plus, now they just give it another number. And so TSMC has N7, N6, N5, N4, N3, N2, N1. What's going to happen after that? Well, we'll go to some other cool name. I don't know what it's going to be. Yeah, but it seems like, if I remember correctly, it was kind of real back, as far back as like 32 nanometer, and then 28, and it just kind of became like they were bending the name and the rules a little bit into 20. And then I, my memory is like, when 14 nanometer came, you know, in quotes, uh, Samsung and Global Foundries called theirs slightly smaller than TSMC. And I think their argument was technically, theoretically, it can be 5% more dense or something silly like that. And then TSMC got lots of questions. Why is yours not 14 nanometer? And they're like, oh, actually, ours is higher performance than theirs, you know. And, and over time, I think by five and seven, it's just, it, honestly, it seems like TSMC decides that i can call this a new number because it's at least 20 percent better overall and now that tsmc does it intel and everyone competing with tsmc because tsmc isn't the lead just calls it a similar number if they think it will compete with it right that's basically what we're at well you know what happened so uh 20 nanometers planar so 20 nanometer actually is 20 nanometer but um intel was the first one out with finfed at 14 and uh tsmc was not as dense as intel so Morris Chang made this decision, and everybody was voting against him. To, we were going to mm. call it, they were going to call it fourteen, but uh, Morris Chang said, "No, you know, you have to give Intel credit where credit's due. Theirs is denser. We're calling ours 14. And then Samsung came out and called theirs fourteen, and it was the same density as TSMC. So TSMC spent a whole note explaining to people why theirs was as good as Samsung. So they They're learned sixteen nanometer, yeah. So they learned an important lesson. Um, but um, you know, TSMC has a new CEO. Uh, his name is CC Wei. Uh, he operates differently. He, he's a very sharp man. Uh, he's not going to let technology, uh, you know, get in his way of getting purchase orders from customers. So he's the one that's behind the, the aggressive naming. And it's worked amazingly, right? If you look at 16 nanometer where uh, TSMC shared the market, uh, it went to 10 nanometer. TSMC, you know, owned the market. Uh, and then at seven, uh, Samsung did an okay job. And then they fell down at five, four, and three. It's only TSMC. So their strategy of, of just doing, you know, a, a, a half step, I call them every year, they release a new process and, you know, they call it a, a new name. It's not a full process. It's a, it's a half step, but it has succeeded, right? I mean, they own the, the market now. They won the FinFET race. We'll see what happens next. You know, we're going to carbon nanotubes. Who knows? Uh, it could be Intel. Jessie here loves sticks, but it definitely wouldn't be healthy if I just let her chow down on them all the time. 
as much as she would like to. The same is usually true for reasonably priced instant meals for humans. It's easy to feel stuck looking for something that's quick to cook, tasty, healthy, and cheap all at the same time. Well, unless you consider Vite Ramen, this piece of content is sponsored by Vite Ramen. Vite Ramen is a healthy, tasty, and shelf-stable food crafted by an American startup that offers a ton of options for eating healthy, like their classic packages that make it easy for you to add protein and other ingredients of your choice to make a complete hearty meal, or their Ramen Go packages that offer a healthy, microwavable option for those who truly only have a 15-minute lunch break, whether at the office or at home. Click on the link in the description and use the offer code BROKENSILICON to save 10% on a variety of different products, including special bundles just for Moore's Laws Dead fans, raw nudes if you want to make up your own recipes, and other food products, cooking utensils, and more. And when you order this spring, know that Vite just shut down for three months and re launch their entire operation to improve speed, customer service, and just to improve things in the back end so they can keep up with how popular their product has become. Supporting them helps support me. And even just clicking on the link below makes a big difference, but I really do like their product and I recommend it. So if you're hungry for something that's healthy, cheap, and easy to make, check out Vite Ramen and use offer code BROKENSILICON today. Well, so I want to start touching on that then. Um, in the script, there was eventually to get to this TSMC 3 nanometer subject. I mean, right now we have rumors, I think, or not even just rumors, I believe in Apple's recent earnings call, they said they aren't getting the yields they wanted to out of 3 nanometer. There's always been rumors about that, but it seems like it's very clearly in the public now. TSMC says our, our yields are below what we wanted and the cost is up. So really, we're not saving much money moving to this new node. Um, DigiTimes is suggesting in a rumor, I believe, that Blackwell is being pushed. That's NVIDIA's next GPU architecture, for those listening, is being pushed back possibly to 2025 instead of late 2024 due to issues with 3 nanometer. And, you know, I've done a lot of AMD Zen 5 leaks over the past couple of weeks, and there's always, I mean, AMD showed this publicly. Zen 5 on a roadmap, 4 nanometer slash 3 nanometer. So they're always clearly designing to both. And everything I've seen from internal slide decks now is 4 nanometer basically across the board, besides maybe the successor to Bergamo or something. Everything else is moving to 4 nanometer. Um, NVIDIA might be pushing back an architecture because of it. To your understanding, um, what's going on here with TSMC's 3 nanometer? And it is something we talked about in 2021 when you were on, like, it seems like it's a little behind, but now it seems like firmly, firmly behind, right? Well, so, you know, I actually like gamer websites. They, they, they come up with some clever things. I think the worst website are Mac rumor websites, you know, Apple <laughs> websites. I mean, they're the worst. So here's the thing with three nanometer is it, it is six months late. And so it missed the Apple um, product launch. So mm -hmm. last year, we could have had three nanometer chips, but uh, we have four nanometer, right, in our phones right now. And so, uh, but TSMC has been open about that. And, um, you know, you have to understand the relationship with TSMC and Apple. It's an exclusive relationship. Apple only works with TSMC, and they get best, fa most favored nation status, which means they get the first process. And it's actually an Apple process. Only Apple gets it. So developing a process for one company, for one product, is much easier than developing a process for an entire ecosystem of customers, right? Mm -hmm. So this is a process specific for Apple. They don't name it. It's just Apple. 
And, you know, you can call it three nanometer, but it's not really three nanometer. And so it's optimized for power because Apple does SOCs and it's optimized for, you know, big chips and it's optimized for Apple devices. So that's all that's supported on the first three nanometer is Apple products. And so Apple gets first dibs. So Apple, you know, wasn't able to get it in the six months and TSMC and Apple developed this together. And so Apple is just as much as fault as TSMC if they don't hit the numbers because Apple says, I want this much power, this much performance, this much, this much. And, you know, TSMC tries to do that. Um, so, you know, this has happened before and, and it'll probably happen again. But um, I was just at the TSMC symposium last week. Uh, you know, all the executives were there and they gave a status. Um, three nanometer is on track. It's going to be in Apple products this year. You might see it in, an, in a Mac or an iPad before the phone, but I'm not sure if you will. But the yield, uh, I saw the yield curves. The yield is, is actually much higher than, than five nanometer at, at this point in time. So, um, and, you know, they look at D0 defects and such. But mm-hmm. um, N3 is doing quite well. In fact, N3 has more tape outs than N5 or N4 did at this point in time. And, and I know the ecosystem really well, and I know where the design starts are. And as far as three nanometer, it's all TSMC. I do not know one company designing at Samsung. So they mm-hmm. they have exclusive. I mean, they have they own three nanometer, but it is going to be a little bit delayed. But you will see three nanometer product this year from Apple, and then next year from all the top customers. Nvidia mm-hmm. is on three nanometer. They're not with Samsung. Qualcomm is on three nanometer. They're not with Samsung. AMD. Everybody. Intel yeah. is on three nanometer. They are also on four nanometer and five nanometer. But they're really going big on three nanometer, and and so I think three nanometer will be the most successful node. In the history of FinFets at TSMC. Now, yeah, I, and I think AMD um, at the wait, sorry, let me make sure I understand. Yeah, so at the end, by the end of next year, yeah, I know T- AMD will be on three nanometer. There, and of course, there's with at least the dense version of Zen Five for like expensive high core count uh, options. Um, but I guess what I'm what I want to ask now then is these rumors of like Nvidia possibly delaying Blackwell. Half, you know, half a year, you know, let's keep in mind, even if it wasn't delayed, that's still a year and a half from now, late 2024. So a lot can change and it's quite in the distance, but like, I guess the, the concern is my understanding is, you know, top Blackwell is going to be that 500 to 800 millimeter squared mega GPU that NVIDIA tends to do every generation out on the top end, these huge monstrous die sizes. Apple makes much smaller chips, at least for their iPhones at first. So do you think that if NVIDIA is pushing back their top chip, if they are, it's not confirmed and things can change even if it was, um, do you think that it's because they really think TSMC is not going to be able to make it at the end of next year? Or do you think it's because of other factors? No, TSMC is fine. They're going to get all the capacity they need. Uh, The thing is, is that um, I don't know which chip it is, but NVIDIA, Intel, AMD, they're moving to chiplets. Right. Mm. I don't know if you want to talk about chiplets, but uh, uh, it's it's a pretty big change. It's a it's a game changer, and so um, you know with chiplets, it's just smaller die. Right, you're not doing the big monolithic die. You're doing smaller dies, and you're hooking them all together. And what that allows you to do, it allows you to do uh, dies on different processes. So you mm-hmm. can have a, a seven nanometer, a, you know, twenty eight nanometer, a three nanometer, and so you know that puts a little a less stress on the semiconductor manufacturers on TSMC because for example you know with some of Intel's chips I think they've talked about this publicly only one die is is 
um, on Intel, the CPU guy. Then the GPU goes to TSMC and the SOC, uh, the, the, the IO chip goes to some other company, you know, and so th- this is the way uh, we're going to be doing business. Now, some companies like Apple probably won't do chiplets because they're in a phone, but um, NVIDIA is doing chiplets. I guarantee it. I don't know what, which chip, but this um, makes it easier to design because it's easier to yield a smaller die. The problem is you have to hook all these chips together. Mm hmm. And that is a very difficult thing. Um, I've written a lot about um, chiplets on on SemiWiki. I've done podcasts. We've done webinars. Um, I actually spoke at a conference just last week, and we had experts on the panel from AMD, from uh, Mercedes, from ARM. And you know, the, the census is that chiplets is very hard to do. I would bet if you see any delays with Intel or NVIDIA or AMD. I would bet it's a chiplet issue rather than a die issue because they're mm-hmm. doing these smaller dies, easier to design to, easier to manufacture, easier to yield, but not so easy to hook together. So that's mm-hmm. my understanding uh, from the ecosystem. That's what people have told me. And, you know, I talk to dozens of companies that do IP and EDA and, and foundries and ASIC services. And the consensus is that, you know, chiplets is going to be a little bit of bump in the road of getting product out the door. This is not manufacturers. This is actual, you know, packaging and getting getting the products, you know, into the, the boards and, and the subsystem. So um, I don't know where NVIDIA is at with that, but I guarantee you they're 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 using chiplets. Well, I, I spoke to someone at NVIDIA about this. Um, I don't know at this point it might have been a month or so ago, and what I was told is their next gen GPU architecture. Of course, ninety percent of the lineup. Either way, it's going to be monolithic. Uh, but the top die, or the top configuration, I guess you'd say, um, I was told there's a chance it's chiplet, but I, I don't have a percentage, but he said, he said it's a remote chance, though. you know, And the full configuration um, is still probably going to be this gigantic monolithic design. But they're trying to get a chiplet version working. But if they do, it's like, you know, Probably less. I, I, again, this isn't something the person said, but let's say it's like one out of five chance they actually go with a chiplet design. If they do, it's not going to be like AMD's latest thing where, you know, there's like five different things put together and it's really elaborate. It's going to be like kind of what Apple's done, where you'd almost argue it isn't chiplets, where it's two of the same thing or, you know, two big dies put together. The reason they're using multiple dies is to make it bigger, not so much to save on cost or use different nodes, right? At least that's what it sounds like right now. And talking to some people at NVIDIA, it really sounds like they still think monolithic is the way to go for 90% of it that isn't like a hyper expensive AI chip. Well, you know, I, I don't agree with that because of the yield issue, right? So if you look at the uh, wafer size, we have, you know, a, a 300 millimeter wafer size and you can only fit so many chips on that. And, you know, all of a sudden you have eight chips on a wafer. That's really hard to yield because if you if you don't yield one of those chips, you know, if you have 10 chips on a wafer, you don't mm-hmm. yield one chips. That's 10% that, that you lose, right? So um, chiplets is, is already happening. It has to happen because you can only get so big of a die on these wafers. And, you know, Apple has a die size limitation because of the size of the phone, right, in your pocket. So that they are in a different story. But companies like Intel, like AMD, they have to go to chiplets because they just can't yield these huge designs on leading edge uh, processes in a short amount of time, right? And you can also say that, you know, there's not enough capacity at three nanometer 
Mm. So you can, you can use four nanometer, seven nanometer for chiplets that don't need to be as fast. Well, yeah, that's what's happening right now though, is NVIDIA is using four nanometer for low or the four N it's, you know, up for debate what it really is, but you know, for the Lovelace cards and well, they're very efficient and the best samples of them are, you know, the cut down ones needed to be cut down and, and they're very fast. AMD is making something 80% as good and it costs significantly less to manufacture because almost half the silicons on six nanometer and they're all smaller chips. So the five nanometer portion, you're getting higher yields, you know? So I, I guess what I would say is I think it, it just seems like something NVIDIA is working on, but they think they can out design AMD and be actually an interesting argument I heard is because AMD is using chiplets, this causes delays. And so, you know, maybe their stuff's cheaper to make, but what if we launch six months before them? What if we have better software? What if because it's monolithic, our best, best yields are just better because they are, they're just better. They don't have to waste energy communicating between chiplets. And again, NVIDIA is working on it, but that kind of shocked me both in a good and a bad way. It sounds a little bit to me like how Intel sounded uh, when they were somewhat caught off guard by chiplets. But on the other hand, it does seem like NVIDIA is executing in a way that Intel isn't. And, and there, there's really kind of a crazy thing said in one conversation of like, you know, eventually you want to be an AI company anyways, and we'll use chiplets for those $10,000 devices. But if eventually we're just making mid-range cards because of some, you know, reticle limit, then I guess we'll just be making mid-range cards and who cares? People will buy them. I, I don't know what you think about that opinion, because I'm sure... Some of those people are listening to this and they'd be curious what your opinion is on that approach NVIDIA is taking of just always trying to make sure they launch first, they don't overcomplicate things, then they have the best software, they can get chiplets working in a way that's similar to AMD good. If not, oh well, we'll be an AI company by then. I, I don't know what you think about that. Well, you know, I've been around NVIDIA for some time and uh, I've worked with them and I have a huge amount of respect for them. And I think they have one of the top CEOs in the industry. Uh, so I would never bet against them, but um, I do agree that a big part of their business is now software and ecosystem. So the actual chip matters less and less, I think, every year because of this ecosystem. And it's just like TSMC has this massive ecosystem. It's a huge, huge uh, competitive advantage. And NVIDIA has that for AI. And, you know, I'm sure, I don't know if they planned the whole AI boom, if they knew it was coming or they just guessed, but, you know, they hit it right on the money. I know NVIDIA is doing chiplets. I can tell you for a fact. I don't know when, but I know it's in process because I'm in the... Well, they would argue Grace already uses chiplets technically, mm -hmm. yeah. right? So well, they'd argue they already have some. Well, so th there's a difference between chiplets and, and packaging. Um, you know, we package multiple dye together for many years. You know, it's called multi-dye. You know, everybody does it. Uh, FPGA companies put two of the dyes in and they double the capacity and then they put a memory dye in. But chiplets is a little bit different you know, there's some architectural issues that you have to, I mean, you're literally doing a separate CPU, GPU, separate IO, separate this and separate that. So it, it's a different type of thing and it is more difficult, but the advantages are huge. So everybody's going to do it. Mm -hmm. You know, the thing too is um, eventually the reticle limit's going to get smaller on two nanometer, right? I mean, yeah. All right, so I kind of want to start drilling into like the economics of chiplets and, and and just silicon in general and what's going on here with cost. So Chris Rich writes in and asks, let's say for the sake of argument that AMD sells the Ryzen 7700 to distributors for 
I don't know, 250. So, and I think that's generally sold. Let's say that, yeah, using a simple silicon calculator and looking at rumors of what TSMC wafer costs are, I would suggest that the silicon cost on this eight core, two chiplet uh, product is 40 to 45 bucks, implying that AMD, if they're selling it for 250 or certainly $300, is making massive profit margins on this. How accurate do you think silicon cost estimates that we constantly throw around online really are? Also, that doesn't include packaging, of course, testing, and a number of other steps, but what would you estimate the true packaging cost to be, including all other factors? And, and just to summarize, like this is like a 120 millimeter squared, six nanometer IO die, a around 71 millimeter squared, five nanometer die. And of course, then it's packaged on to, you know, to go into an AM5 product and there's a little heat spreader on it and stuff. Like, do you think that costs like 50 bucks, 100 bucks? Obviously, this isn't exact, but I, I am curious how much margin you think is on something like that. You know, I have never seen an accurate cost. And the, the thing is, is the cost I know are wafer costs, right? And it, it's very, um, it's very protected on, on NDAs, so I can't even say. But anytime I read about costs of wafers or cost of design, they're never close. In fact, they're usually over, over what that actually is. Uh, you know, they used to say it costs half a billion dollars to do a three nanometer chip. I mean, it's not even close. So it's way less than that. <laughs> yeah. I can okay. even comment. And, you know, it also depends on the type of chip and which com- type of company is doing it. Um, so I pretty much ignore the costs associated with, I mean, leave that to the financial guys. But uh, rumors, boy, I tell you, they're actually quite funny because they're never even close. In terms of like the, co- well, it, d- it depends on which rumors because every now and then, and I really treasure when I get access to this, I'll get like a bomb sheet. I got one for Ampere. I got one for this uh, for the VR devices Meta's making. And so I'm like, well, here I go. At least when I look at chip, estimates people are saying in the future i can go well i know meta paid this much for a gigabyte of ram and i know they paid this much for that and i know they must be making this much profit but i think it it really varies wildly i get most annoyed when i see estimates from companies around the consoles because they'll say things like oh we estimate the playstation 5 costs 700 dollars to make and then a month later, Sony's like, we're profiting off of each one sold. And I'm like, hey, guys, it never costs that much to make these things. Like, what are you talking about? But I guess to try to drill in here, you have no doubt that like a 200 millimeter squared thing like is making high margins at $300, though. And like, because some companies are arguing right now, oh, no, it really costs way more. That's why we have to raise prices. And I think there's a lot of justified skepticism that some of these things cost as much as they say they do when they raise prices, and that it's really about something else. Well, you know, financial guys look through the company reports, and they can come very close as to what things cost. But, um, you know, again, I don't do that. And when I do see, you know, a privileged document, and I say, oh, okay, now I know what it costs. And then I do a Google and look at the media's, you know, they, about what they say it costs. And it's just, it's never even close. So. I, I don't even really uh, bother with it anymore. Mm-hmm. Well, I guess to try to drill in on one thing here, though, because I'm curious what you think the strategy is around this. Like right now, AMD is planning to launch this graphics card called the 7600. It's going to be a 200 millimeter square die for a graphics card that uses about 180 watts or something. 
and it has eight gigabytes of RAM on it. Now, there's a million ways I could argue if it costs this much to make relative to other things they clearly profited off of in the past. But my favorite example right now is a year ago, they launched the 6500 XT. That was also on six nanometer that also had eight gigabytes of RAM. The only difference is it had a 100 millimeter square die instead of 200. So my guess is that's about 15 bucks in difference in silicon costs there. Um, And yet what that means is I think they could sell this thing with good margins that I know they had last year, because you can look at their financial reports. They were making tons of money with what they charged last year. Um, I, I think they could easily sell this thing for like 280, you know, 300, and maybe, maybe even making more money percentage-wise compared to the previous uh, thing I was comparing it to. So I guess, you know, when I hear behind the scenes that they want to charge between like 320 and 350, and yet this market is going like, People aren't buying things. They're super skeptical. You have tons of price drops happening week after week on a lot of these things that failed to sell as well as they expected. And yet they're still considering selling something for a margin that's clearly way higher than it needs to be. Why do you think they would keep doing that? Like they can do this, have the margins that they say they want, which is like 45 to 55%. It can be at a price that I know would be attractive. And yet they're considering a price that I am sure no one's going to want this for. What, and we've seen NVIDIA and AMD jump back and forth with tons of launches this year doing that. Why, why do you think they keep doing it? Well, probably because they can. You know, I really don't know. But I do have a comment about AMD. I mean, have you seen the change in AMD since they went to TSMC? Well, I mean, you'd mean in terms of success or... Product. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's just huge. And, you, you know, you can credit uh, Lisa Sue all you want, but the AMD relation, the AMD relationship with TSMC is is really epic. I mean, TSMC does their packaging, right? Mm-hmm. TSMC is, provides a full solution for them. So, what AMD did, you know, years ago to what they do today is completely different. In fact, even what they did two years ago to what they do today is completely different because the relationship has expanded. I can't imagine AMD making uh, worse margins today or moving forward. It's only going to get better because that relationship with TSMC is really, really close. NVIDIA doesn't have that relationship. You know, they've been at Samsung for a while and they've been hopping around. If you're exclusive to TSMC, you get access to data. You get uh, different types of relationship. Uh, Apple, AMD, you know, have the closest relationship. And it really uh, makes a a big uh, difference in how their products are, are made. And margins is a big part of that. I mean, TSMC does a really good job for AMD. AMD also, I don't know, if you realize this, but they bought Xilinx and Xilinx mm-hmm. started the whole packaging era with TSMC, a co-os, and now they have Infos, Infos and, and at the conference uh, this week with TSMC, they went through all their new stuff and there's AMD, you know, in all their examples or in some of their examples. So I saw architecture pictures. I have some of the slides of all the AMD chips and it, w- it was just incredible. And, um, you know, so I, I, I really have high hopes, so I wouldn't bet against AMD right now. Right. But, like, it's just they think they can get away with charging that much. That's the answer, then, basically. Well, if they have a superior product, they can. And mm-hmm. as far as um, advancement in their GPU technology, uh, I, th- I think they've done quite a good job uh, against Intel and uh, NVIDIA. I think moving forward, you know, pricing for uh, these products it's really going to be dependent on the manufacturing and, you know, um, manufacturing is expensive and it's getting more expensive. 
And so if, but if you use chiplets, you can save a lot of money and you can save a lot of time and you can save a lot of design time and you can save, save a lot of time to market. So, you know, maybe AMD is building up to that, but uh, it's going to be a big competitive issue. And I can tell you that AMD, as far as, you know, those types of companies, they're by far ahead in the chiplet race. Mm -hmm. I, I, I have high hopes for AMD. Uh, well, you touched on this though, so I want to get to it. Dino999 writes in and asks, I've seen it mentioned many times that TSMC is making NVIDIA pay for their wafers. To my understanding, a big reason is because NVIDIA decided to use Samsung for Ampere. How does NVIDIA's current relationship compare to TSMC faithfuls like AMD or Apple? And do you have any insight into how TSMC decides to treat each individual customer? Since it doesn't seem to be a level playing field, for those that try to get involved making their stuff at TSMC next to AMD. Well, here's the thing is, is if you're exclusive to TSMC, you get access to things that uh, people who are not exclusive do. So, you know, it's a couple of reasons. You know, one of it is financial, of course, but it's also competitive information and, uh, you know, intellectual property. Uh, if your team is designed to TSMC and Samsung, there's going to be leakage. And so if you're going to go to TSMC exclusively, you're going to have first access, you're going to have full access. If you have teams designing to other foundries like NVIDIA and Qualcomm, you're going to have much more limited access. And so that's how it is today. And it's been like that since Apple came to TSMC. And, you know, it makes sense because before FinFETs, uh, people used to design to TSMC and then they could take the exact design to other foundries and manufacture them. And, you know, it's not really fair for TSMC because they do the heavy lifting and then, you know, the volumes go elsewhere. So TSMC has been very protective of their IP. And one of, that, one of the ways they do that is limiting the information that's given to customers, you know. Mm -hmm. So if you're exclusive, like Apple and AMD, you get first access. You know, Apple gets their own process. I mean, Apple prepays, you know, they, they buy fabs, really. But, um, you know, if think about it. If you have a company like NVIDIA that's developing to both Samsung and TSMC, how, how much do you trust them with your information? Mm -hmm. I mean, you and know, so like I've heard like a key thing about TSMC working with them compared to other foundries is how good they are at working with your hard design team on making sure it's as efficiently designed for the node as possible. You're basically saying, well, if you're AMD and you're only building stuff at TSMC, then TSMC can say, hey, there's this way to get even more efficiency out of this node if you do this. And they're more reluctant to say stuff like that to NVIDIA, right? Yeah, or they can give them access to the PDKs early. They can give them customized PDKs. You know, it, it's it's stuff like that. So, um, you know, and and the problem is, you know, it becomes a monopolistic thing where you know all of a sudden TSMC has a lock on every customer. You know, and you can't have that as well. So, you know, it's a balance. But um, Nvidia, you know, has made a practice of going to multiple foundries, and good for them. It's unfortunate that Samsung has just screwed everything up. You know, if Samsung was more competitive, I think we would be better as an industry because it would push TSMC even faster. You know, who's pushing TSMC? Well, nobody right now. Hopefully Intel does, but Samsung mm -hmm. has just completely blown it. And uh, I think Qualcomm and NVIDIA are making some big changes. At the TSMC symposium, the new Qualcomm CEO stood up and just, you know, sang praises to TSMC. And so things might be changing between those two companies. Um, they have a new CEO. TSMC has a new CEO. You know, they do business differently now. Um, NVIDIA, same CEO. So I don't know if that's going to change. But I, I would bet that Qualcomm is going to be much more CFC, 
TSMC dependent in the future than they have been in the past. Well, you know, and I really want to jump in here and say this because I haven't really read into who's saying this or why it's being talked about on Reddit or whatever, but I saw some rumors circulating last week that like Samsung's four nanometer might actually be as good as TSMC's or something. And I just got to be clear to everyone listening to this. One of the conversations I had with somebody at NVIDIA a couple months ago, <laughs> this person said, by the way, Samsung's latest node sucks. <laughs> like there's no way we're going to their newer stuff anytime soon. And so I, I, I do want to be clear about that. Like, cause I, I've seen some wild rumors as I often do online. I think maybe even at places like DigiTimes and stuff that Samsung's node may actually catch up to TSMC because of three nanometer delays. And I don't know how true it is that Samsung may make up some lost ground, I guess. But what I can say is the people actually working at AMD and NVIDIA do not want to go to Samsung's latest node and they only have bad things to say. So I do think at least this year, TSMC is still very firmly in the lead. Yeah, so this is one of the advantages uh, SemiWiki has because we, we get invited to all the conferences for free, right? And it's, it's, it's huge. It saves us a huge amount of money. So we go to the conferences, IEDM, you know, uh, SPIE, ISSCC, and people present papers. Samsung is a prolific paper presenter, and <laughs> it's very good because it gets other people to present papers. So we look at the Samsung paper on the different processes, and I have three process ex- experts on staff. And we look at the, pro- the the papers and we say, wow, you know, good stuff. They say that they're the densest. They give their SRAM density, blah, blah, blah. Okay, that's great. So yes, maybe better than TSMC on paper. And then we go to the companies themselves and we ask questions, right? And Samsung is the worst at answering questions. They are the absolute worst. They used to be a sponsor of SemiWiki. We used to work with them, but we don't anymore. I mean, we, we don't like them because they just, <laughs> don't tell, they just don't tell the truth, you know? And And then we go to the IP companies. And that's where the, you know, the rubber hits the road. Because if you're doing, you have to have IP before you can do a design. And uh, if you're doing IP, you, you're first access to the processes, right? So ARM and, and the Surdays guys and this and that, they, they all have access. And, you know, th- they tell us, yeah, you know, Samsung's got a great process, but guess what? The PDK is not usable. And the PDK is the interface between the process and the design, right? So if your PDK sucks, you, you can't use it. You know, it doesn't matter what your density numbers are. So that's the problem with Samsung is their PDKs are really bad. Well, you know, um, that's something I, I just hear about in general is like the fact that that um, TSMC is easy to work with. If there was a competitor that had a slightly better node, it would have to be more than slightly better or it'd have to be way cheaper for them to consider using it just because, you know, let's say Intel or TS or Samsung has a node 10% better than whatever TSMC's latest note is. The fact that TSMC is so competent, easy to work with, helps you so much in the hard design, you probably take that 10% haircut, should have that peace of mind that you will get the yields they told you you would get, and you will launch on time, right? Yeah, you know, that, that's mostly the ecosystem. So, you know, when you build a design, you have to have tools, and TSMC verifies that all the tools work and that are silicon-proven, and same thing with IP and everything else. So, it's all about the ecosystem. You say TSMC is easy to work with, but it's the ecosystem that's easy to work with, right? Mm-hmm. So TSMC has verified everything. They have all the files. You know, you just go on the TSMC side and click, say, hey, this is the IP I want to use. Oh, well, here's some that have been used, you know, in a similar application. They're all silicon proven. I can sleep at night, right? <clears throat> so that's the ecosystem at work. But, you know, TSMC is, is a very customer-centric company. 
uh, very customer centric culture. So, you know, I've worked for them for 25 years. They've never led me, led me astray. So that's why I'm a big fanboy. But um, <laughs> I, I don't think it's a good idea to only have one foundry. No. And, you know, TSMC understands that. So that's why, you know, I was really a big fan of global foundries in the beginning. Uh, but boy, that, that was uh, a dumpster fire. And uh, then, you know, I cozied up to Samsung to see if I could help them and, and get them, you know, a little bit more friendly, but that didn't work. Now I'm, you know, trying, I'm hoping on Intel. And, you know, Intel has a foundry group right now. And, <clears throat> you know, I know them fairly well because a lot of them are for t- from TSMC and Samsung. Um, they've they've hired very well but it all comes down to the pdk you know intel knows how to build manufacturing they've been doing it for years they might even be the best at it uh they know how to build processors you know world leader but when you have to do a pdk for your own product versus a pdk for foundry for hundreds of companies it's a very different thing so the question is will tsmc be successful in the foundry business it's all about the pdk and the ecosystem and hopefully they will be you know, my fingers are crossed because we don't want one foundry. You know, it'd be nice to have three, but at least two. Ever feel like a dog chasing its tail as you scour dozens of eBay postings and CD websites looking for a safe way to get reasonably priced Microsoft software? Well, you don't have to do that. Just go to cdkeyoffer.com. This piece of content is sponsored by cdkeyoffer.com that offers both Microsoft operating systems, office products, select games, and even some gaming hardware peripherals for reasonable prices. And, you know, they've been a sponsor of Moore's Law's Dead and the entire team here for years for a reason. They've been good to me. They've been good to Dan. They've been good to dozens of me and Dan's family members and friends for years now. And they've also been good to the Moore's Law is Dead community. So whether you're looking for Steam, EA, Uplay, or PlayStation keys, or of course, Microsoft products or gaming peripherals, Support Moore's Law is Dead by using the offer code BROKENSILICON for 25% off all Microsoft products and DieShrink for 3% off everything else on the website. Support Moore's Law is Dead by supporting one of our best long-term sponsors, cdkeyoffer.com today. Also, perfect way to transition then. Um, Samantha Vimes writes in and asks, if you had to give a percentage chance how likely do you think it is that Intel is able to become a successful fab for outside companies in the next five years? If you think the chance is low, what do you think the roadblocks are? And if you think they can get what gives you, oh, and if you think they can get there, what gives you that optimism that they can? And, you know, this is, I guess I'll just throw in here too, uh, talking to people at Intel, it really seems like a lot of their delays right now for all of these products is the design side for the most part. It, it was certainly the foundry side for a bit there although one could argue the designers have to take some blame for giving them designs the foundry could make but what i'm hearing talking to people in intel foundries is they're ahead of schedule they're hitting their targets everything seems to be good and then they get given this meteor lake stepping and the thing doesn't work and the meteor lake design team's kind of asking well what if we change the rules here under this and they're like well no you have to design and build to this and I just see that as a major headwind, but also an interesting idea of like what could happen, what type of company Intel could be foremost in five years. Like, do you think they're going to get there though, where they could be a foundry that is seen more as a foundry, not as something that makes the most advanced chip designs? And uh, yeah, I mean, that was Samantha's question. Well, so I think 
Intel Foundry's goal is to be the number two foundry in 10 years. I think I heard that somewhere. And I hmm. think they could do it in five because Samsung is just horrible, right? And so uh, customers will do anything. So there, there's two types of business. There's the um, business that Samsung has relied on, which is the not TSMC business. You know, those are companies that don't want to do business with TSMC, <laughs> and they, so not TSMC. And Sam, Samsung, actually, their wafer prices are very good. Uh, they're about twenty mm-hmm. percent less than TSMC, but you know that just tells you how crummy their PDKs are. It's like I'm not even going to pay you know twenty percent more to go to, to TSMC, you know, because the PDKs are just unusable. So if they could use Samsung, they would. But the bottom line is they can't. So TS, so Intel has an opportunity there, but they can't use pricing, right? Because they can't charge twenty percent less than than TSMC because you know their pricing is probably more than TSMC. Mm-hmm. That's what I hear, by the way. Their nodes are not cheap to use. Yeah, like, yeah. sure, they're using their own nodes, but they're still very expensive. Yeah, well, for the foundry business, they're gonna, it's their own node, right? So, uh, but they have to have a technological advantage, right? Or they're just going to get the not TSMC business, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, you want to get business based on your competitive merits. That, that's how you grow in this industry. So Intel 4 is fine. You know, uh, by the way, Meteor Lake, in my opinion, that's a chiplet problem. That's one of the examples I told you. Meteor sure. Lake. And so Meteor Lake has, you know, three different processes in, in the chiplets, I think. Um, but Intel 4 is fine. <clears throat> you know, I, I heard something that said Meteor Lake is delayed because Intel doesn't know how to do EUV. You know, it's like, that's... No, I, that's not what I've heard. I've heard it's the design team getting the chiplets to work together and they're on like their 12th stepping or something. You know, it's, it's not that the node itself doesn't work. Well, it's a chiplet problem is, is what, what I understand. And, you know, that's based on experience, right? This is their first, you know, big uh, chiplet, chiplets. And so uh, they'll get over that. But it's not a process problem. So process is fine. Um, so Intel 3 is fine. But, you know, people really aren't going to use Intel 3 for the foundry because TSMC 3, you know, everybody's been taping out to it. It works. You know, some people will use Intel 3, but it's not a big competitive advantage. Um, mm-hmm. Intel is also working on 18A, which is the first, you know, gate all around. And <clears throat> a lot of people are interested in it. And so that could be the big breakout node for TSMC uh, or for Intel against TSMC. A Samsung's three nanometer is is the comparable to Intel 2 and I mean, Intel 18A and TSMC 2, but it doesn't work. You know, I mean, Samsung mm-hmm. really botched it. And so are people going to go back to them? I don't know. You know, it's kind of hard after you fail really hard like that. So, you know, the question is, will TSMC's N2 be competitive with Intel 18A? Mm-hmm. Well, no. You know, at the conferences, at the papers, yes, it's going to be ahead. But the PDK is the critical point. So mm-hmm. we don't know yet. Right? So the N2 PDK is not out yet. The 18A PDK is uh, still being uh, developed. We'll know in a year. But Intel could be a big winner here. I'm hoping mm-hmm. for it. But again, if they botch the PDK, then it's another TSMC, you know, monopoly. Right. So, yeah. And that's what it sounds like or it looks like to me, too, is, I mean, you align where things are going with TSMC. You align where Intel's trying to get. I hear Intel's fabs are making progress. And you go, oh, yeah, in a couple of years, Intel may have at least a slightly better node than TSMC. But you're saying that's what's going to be critical because no one's interested in a node that's similar to TSMC but has not made it TSMC. They'll only go to Intel if they can actually beat TSMC in performance. 
first and 18A is going to be critical for finding out if that happens, basically. I hope so. And, you know, Intel's also, also got the made in America thing, right? So uh, 18A is going to be, you know, big in the United States. Uh, TSMC won't have N2 in the United States anytime soon. So it could be, you know, made in America, blah, blah, blah. But, um, and then there'll be not TSMC business, right? You, you want to put business in another fab. But the big swing is, it's a, it's a very competitive node. And in that regard, Intel is known for their high performance, right? So, and that's a big part of the business, HPC. So Intel could get a lot of the HPC boundary business if they have a better performing uh, node. So Samantha Vimes writes in yet again and asks, how much do you think TSMC is squeezing the market right now then? If Intel got their fabs to be competitive and started securing contracts, do you think TSMC would be forced to cut prices do you think this would affect newer and older nodes at the same time or just the newer ones and why? Now, you know, uh, TSMC won the FinFET war, right? I mean, they, they have the best yield, the best performance, the best density. They have the best ecosystem. I don't think there's any threat to TSMC in regards to uh, the FinFETs. It's what's after FinFETs. Um, sure, they'll get FinFET business uh, because of the not TSMC, uh, um, you know, business model. But uh, competitively, they're not going to win business against TSMC on FinFETs. It's just not going to happen. Mm -hmm. Right. So, yeah. And, you know, it's funny. I've heard, and I don't have any exact numbers, but I've heard suggestion that, like, the current 10 nanometer node Intel's using for, like, Raptor Lake, that that actually costs more to make than not only TSMC 7, but their 5 nanometer. And that basically all of Intel's older nodes aren't cost competitive with the TSMC uh, you know, 28 nanometer and 16 nanometer stuff. And so, yeah, I guess you're saying there's really no reason for them to use older Intel nodes, only the newest stuff if it's cost competitive, right? Yeah. And, and you know, TSMC has low power, you know, and Intel is really not known for that. And, <laughs> uh, you know, TSMC just has a lot more experience at a broad customer base with these nodes, right? Mm -hmm. Intel has been focused on microprocessors. So they're having to retune these processes for microprocessors. And that's fine. And I'm sure they'll get some business, but it's not really going to make a big difference. And I think what they're going to do is they're going to take business away from Samsung. Right. Oh, yeah. And so, uh, uh, but, you know, uh, here's the thing is if Intel can beat TSMC to the next node, to the nanotubes, uh, et cetera, um, that will be huge. And, and that will get them business in all regards. But, you know, it could happen. It couldn't happen. You asked for odds 50-50. You know, mm -hmm. and it's just because of the PDK it has nothing to do with the process technology. I'm completely confident that they are very good at EUV. They're very good at manufacturing the best in the world, probably uh, for high performance manufacturing. But that PDK, that ecosystem is, is very difficult. Well, so here's an interesting thing, though, about TSMC versus Intel nodes. It does seem like there was this move a few years ago after the whiplash of their 10 nanometer delays to make sure they could design a TSMC if they needed to use TSMC. But the fact of the matter is, even if you can make something at TSMC, that really doesn't change that Intel kind of has to fill up their own fabs or they're losing a lot of money. And from what I've heard, Mobile Arrow Lake late next year will be on their own fabs, 18A, I believe, or I think it might have been 20A. Uh, and then... But the desktop version is supposedly going to be on N3X at TSMC, which is funny because I think, you know, they said, well, TSMC has got this great node. The X version clocks extremely high, perfect for desktop. Uh, and, you know, if 
it so happens that our node gets delayed, we can use the TSMC design everywhere instead of our own 18A design. Perfect. But what's weird is I'm like, well, now their founders are ahead of schedule. A lot of their chips are being delayed. If they make the working version at TSMC and aren't filling up their own fabs, I don't know. Like that's a huge money sink right there. It's almost like they should have delay. They should have designed Alder Lake at TSMC and everything else at their own fabs because that's when they actually needed it to be at their own fabs for financial reasons. And I just kind of want to use this also as an opportunity to jump into the conversation about Intel's earnings because, from my perspective, the worse Intel's earnings get, the less I have to say about them. You know, it's like. I don't know. These are really bad numbers. They look worse than last quarter's numbers. And I see them axing department after department after department. And I go, I just worry, like, I have no doubt that, like, these things they're working on, like Arrow Lake and Diamond Rapids, are going to be great. And I sounds like their foundries are on track. But I'm concerned they're going to be a company that's very, very, very wounded by the time they even get to the stuff that's competitive. And when they do, it looks more expensive to make than what AMD is making. So I guess, I don't know if you have any thoughts on Intel's earnings. And if you feel like there is somewhat of a race against time here where it's like, yes, they have cool things coming out. But if those things cost twice as much to make as their competition and they're out of money by the time they launch, I mean, what are we going to do about that? I, I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. Yeah, you know, I do follow the earnings. I'm not a financial guy, but um, there's always discussions on SemiWiki about earnings and uh, you know, I, I go through the TSMC earnings with a fine-tooth comb because I know more about that. But I did look at the Intel earnings, and there's a thread on SemiWiki about it where some guys who know more about it. And some guys were impressed with it. It was surprising. And some, kinds were, some, some people were depressed. Uh, but um, I think the economic uh, uncertainty in, in the world is weighing heavily on Intel. And I, I don't think their demise is of their own doing, um, at least quarterly. Uh, I think Pat Gelsinger is a great leader. You know, I know people that work for him. I think he's doing a great job, but he, he got handed a couple curveballs, you know, since he, he took office. And, um, you know, it's a difficult time. And I, I don't think that it is non-recoverable. In fact, I think they're at the bottom now. I think that they will have a better quarter next quarter, and I think it will be on the rise. I personally think next year is going to be a great year for the semiconductor industry, and Intel is in a good position for that. Um, you know, the, the whole manufacturing thing is is the difficult thing. You know, some people say Intel should be fabless. Uh, some people say, you know, split out the fabs. Uh, I, I don't think so. I, I think Intel's strength is the ability to, you know, design, manufacture, and do software. You know, Intel has a huge software component, and software is important now for chips. In fact, you know, it is, look at NVIDIA. You know, where would, be, where would NVIDIA be without software? Right, mm -hmm. they have huge catalogs of software ecosystem. It's the same with Intel. They have a huge uh, amount of software, uh, software stacks, all sorts of things. And so, um, the combination of that manufacturing design and the software, it's it's very powerful. And I think you're going to need to keep that together. But I don't think they've really realized the real value in those three different pillars. Um, moving forward, you know, mobile is always going to be big, but the biggest driver in the industry is AI. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you see the chat, the chat stuff. I've seen it. Um, I have high hopes for AI. <clears throat> It'd be nice if AI did background checks for people, you know, when they get jobs and when they get uh, weapons and everything. I think AI could do a lot better job at that and many, many other things. <clears throat> but 
And one thing about AI is it's, it's going to take a huge amount of performance, a huge amount of power, huge amount of memory, and a huge amount of software. And I think in, Intel's well positioned for that. So I think AI is going to, going to help them out quite a bit. Yeah, I guess, you know, you brought up NVIDIA though with software and yeah, they just, they launched, uh, they argue, you know, their Alchemist graphics cards, which have had just dozens of software issues. And granted, this is hard to do graphics cards. So software issues were somewhat expected, but it still seems like the amount of updates you know, from a gamer's perspective, they're pushing out per month. They're actually not pushing out as many patches or should I say like driver releases as NVIDIA and AMD to this day. And so I, I guess I'm just concerned, though, when it comes to software and really everything you mentioned, like, is this just a behemoth that's still this aircraft carrier that takes forever to steer? Because at least when we see products come out, they still don't ha seem to have the software they need to have. They don't seem to have it to this day. And is, and, and is there just a chance that like, because Pat was acting very, <laughs> very cocky a couple of years ago, and he seems to have backed down on the cockiness recently. You think there's a chance he underestimated how much strength it's going to take to turn the steering wheel on the aircraft carrier. And that is there because I, I don't want to make it sound more doomish than it then I will mean for it to, but like how much of this is just like a momentum issue that wasn't great. Someone didn't grab the steering wheel soon enough. And like all of this is still going to all happen because I hear about better server products coming from Intel. And yet I hear all my server contacts saying, well, we're going with AMD because they've proven themselves for three years in a row, you know, and it just seems like laptops as well. Everything is, everyone's just switching from Intel and their revenues down so much. It's, I, I don't know. I just, I just wonder. I agree that they should be able to do all of these things, but how much of this is just hitting the brakes on a train, and they didn't hit the brakes soon enough, and so it could just be much, much bumpier over the next two years than it really ought to be. And then Pat probably thought it would be. Yeah, you know, I think the pandemic really, uh, you know, put a damper in his uh, plans, and uh, I, it's, it's going to get worse than you might imagine because uh, not just AMD, but a lot of these companies are building their own chips, so mm -hmm. Google and, and everybody. And I've been involved in a couple of projects uh, with these companies, and it's kind of interesting. They develop chips differently than most companies. Um, they have huge checkbooks, and uh, you know they, they <clears throat> spend a huge amount of money on developing these internal chips because they're not selling them. Right? It's only for their own use, and the cloud is you know hugely competitive and hugely profitable. But you know, the, the amount of Intel chips that are going to be in these servers are, are going to be reduced, uh, you know, instead of being the compute horsepower uh, that, you know, of, of, of yesterday, they're going to be housekeeping, housekeeping chips, because the power of performance type stuff is going to go to their own, you know, uh, uh, their own chips. So Google is making these amazing chips. Uh, Amazon mm -hmm. is making these amazing chips. Uh, all these companies, Microsoft has a huge, huge chip organization. And even Facebook or Meta, and <clears throat> I see this on SemiWiki, I see all these domains coming in. Um, Airbnb is making their chips now. <laughs> and it's like, what, what are they doing? I, I have no idea. I don't know. That's when I'd worry there's some kind of a bubble there or something. <laughs> yeah. But who knows? Maybe well, they'll make a good chip. I don't know. Well, maybe it's going to be spy chips so they can spy on us. Uh, well, um, you may find this funny in terms of like, I didn't know a company was working on something. I was looking at Duolingo, just, you know, a language practicing app. Um, and in between language sessions, it said, did you know we're now in real estate? And I'm like, 
Why is a Rosetta Stone competitor selling houses? That can't be a good sign. <laughs> or what's going? That's what I think of when you say Airbnb is making their own chips. Yeah, well, you know what? When I see them on SemiWiki, then I look on LinkedIn, and I actually know people that work at there, and they used to work for Google and 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 Intel, and uh, it's just funny. But you know, the point is, is is domain specific chips are going to come back to this industry. And it's going to come back in a big way. And these people who are doing their own chips, like Google, they, they don't mind spending huge amounts of money mm-hmm. on chips. And they have the money, too. And they're spending it on software. They're spending it on IP. <clears throat> it's just an incredible boon for our ecosystem. But um, I, I would say that would be the most worrisome thing about Intel. Uh, AMD, sure. But, um, yeah, we're, we're seeing a change in, in chips of how they develop. System companies are making their own chips. And, you know, it started with Apple, but uh, car companies are making their own chips, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, <clears throat> you know, the uh, funny thing about uh, the conference, C.C. Way, the CEO, uh, went up there, and he's a funny guy. Uh, he likes to make jokes. And he said, yeah, he said, uh, I'm best friends with all the CEOs of the car companies now because they called him directly asking for chips. And it, it's, I'm sure it's true, but it's just kind of funny. And, you know, the other thing he said uh, that was funny is <clears throat> he didn't give a forecast this year which he normally does. And he said, yeah, he said, my last forecast was so bad. I'm not doing it. <laughs> yeah. And he said, we're working on AI for better forecasting. And he laughed and I don't know if they are or not, but um, you know, TSMC's forecasts are based on their customers, right? Mm-hmm. So their own, their forecast is only as good as their customer forecast. And as we know, people yeah. just really screwed up their forecasts. And, you know, rather than having a double digit gain this year, TSMC is probably going to have a single digit loss as far as percentage of revenue for right. And that, that's, that's the first time I've seen that in, in my career with, with these guys. And so it's very concerning. Um, but I do think it's, it's, a uh, at the bottom, it's a blip. I think next year, you know, inventories are going to be depleted and, uh, you know, this whole recession thing is going to be, it's going to be over. But, you know, if you look at what's happening when Pat took over, you know, it, it's the pandemic, it's the war in Ukraine, it's geopolitical uncertainty, you know, China, is a big part of Intel's business, you know, and, uh, and, you know, it's, it's just, it's been a difficult time for him. So it's the worst of the worst. But if you look at what he's done in the, during the worst of the worst period, you got to be impressed. And so just think about what he's going to be able to do when things turn around. Yeah, I have high hopes. Well, I guess, and, and I bring this up, not because I necessarily agree, because I, I really don't have an opinion on this either way, but I think that at least a lot of the, uh, people, in the Moore's Law's Dead Discord, who like to look at earnings and armchair analyze for fun and stuff, I think they look at you know, like a year of bad earnings results every quarter, and they go, is Pat doing a good job? And if he is, how can we measure it? My argument would be, we, we just won't know for a year. Like We need another year to see, because it takes time to do anything, implement anything, succeed at anything. So I can't say either way if Pat succeeded until there's been enough time to see if he has. But what would you say to the people, though, that go, well, how can you say he's done a good job? They're still behind. Revenue continues to go down every quarter. AMD's launching products before they are that cost less to make still. What would make, what are you seeing that tells you he is doing a good job already? He got manufacturing back on track. Mm-hmm. That's true. You know, uh, before he joined, there was a huge disconnect between design and manufacturing and in Intel. and there was a huge disconnect else place and he really cleaned house, you know, and he brought in his trusted few. And, uh, so, you know, I think, I think 
the turnaround would have happened much sooner without the mm. uh, other factors of pandemic and and the economy and inflation. But um, boy, if you think you'd be in better shape without Pat, you're wrong. Intel would be in much worse shape. And I think the prospects of them having a, a, a really good year next year, I think are pretty high. Mm-hmm. Do you think there's a chance it could still look pretty bleak, though, for another quarter or two, but next year it should for sure turn around? Next year, yeah. Oh, no, this year is, this year is going to suck. I mean, <laughs> okay. TSMC said it, and, you know, they're my bellwether, and, uh, uh, you know, they have hundreds of customers, right? So, including AMD. So, if TSMC says it's going to suck, it's going to suck. Uh, and, um, but they're saying next year is going to be a much better year. And I agree with that. QH Freddy writes in and asks, do you see any similarities or differences between where Intel is going and where a- I- IBM went? Basically, and this is something people bring up because I, because I, I caution people. I go, guys, I don't know if Intel, nothing lasts forever, but to say Intel is going to go out of business and then even the next 10 years is absurd. Really the next 20, probably. But IBM still functions. Like, is there a chance it could be an IBM situation, though, if some of these things continue to not execute? Or do you think there's no chance it's like it's like IBM where Intel becomes like half as big as or I don't know what number, but like a a shell of its former self? Do you think there's no chance of that happening or do you actually see some similarities and give it a small chance? I mean, it certainly could happen. But, um, you know, when, when I got out of college, I interviewed with IBM. They were one of the big recruiters, and uh, I chose not to go to IBM because I tell you, my feeling, and after I traveled back east, was that they were already a dinosaur, you know, and and there were so many other innovative companies in Silicon Valley. And, you know, I I thought to myself, I'm like, are they going to be around in 10 years? And I said, no, you know, why would I want to go to work for that company? This was in 1980. So they they lasted a lot more than 10 years. But, um, you know, they just didn't have a good CEO. They had a culture that wouldn't change. Um, I think Intel has proven uh, that wrong. You know, they did change culture and they do have a good CEO. So, <clears throat> and maybe it was a, a you know, swim or sink uh, type of thing. But, um, you know, I'm, I'm a big fan of CEOs. Uh, I will not invest in a company either financially or personally uh, unless I'm really a big fan of the CEO. And I'll tell you the top CEOs in the industry, you know, CC Way is at the top, uh, Jensen. Uh, from NVIDIA is at the top. Lisa Su is at the top. Pat Gelsinger is definitely at the top. And this is just semiconductor companies that I know. And there's a few others. I'm warming up to Qualcomm's new CEO. I didn't like the last one, uh, but I saw him speak and I spoke to him. Um, but, you know, without a good CEO, uh, you're not going to have a chance, right? And Intel does have a good CEO. And I tell you, a lot of people trust him, you know, based on his experience with Intel and uh, he's got the personality and, you know, he, he's got an ego and, he, and he's got, um, you know, stubbornness. So uh, I, I give them uh, a high chances just based on that. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it sounds like you're hey, it sounds like you're saying the difference is IBM didn't have the vision or leadership at the top. But you think Intel does. So at a minimum, it won't be as bad as IBM. <laughs> yeah. OK, um, well, all right. I have a few just kind of, you know, wrap up questions here. We've gone through the main subjects, but I want to kind of parse through the lingering things we didn't quite touch on yet. So King Harkinian writes in and asks, hello, Tom and Mr. Nenny. Mr. Nenny mentioned on semiwiki.com that TSMC three nanometer was a, in quotes, very important node compared to TSMC five nanometer. 
Could you elaborate on why? Is three nanometer going to last a very, very long time? And that's why you said it. Does it have specific impacts on the industry and other ways than its life cycle compared to previous nodes? Why is three nanometer so important compared to the other nodes, in your opinion? Well, you know, there's, there's one big point is that um, it's the last of the FinFET nodes, right? And so if, if you look at TSMC's roadmap that they presented uh, this week, is uh, they have multiple versions of 3 nanometer, and they will continue to do so. The thing you need to know about FinFETs is FinFETs is open source. So there's a lot of FinFET development models and stuff that are open source that anybody can access. It came out of UC Berkeley. Everybody shares mm-hmm. it. FinFETs was a phenomenal and maybe, you know, a, a unrepeatable uh, success because of the open source. Um, the next generation nanotubes and stuff are not open source. All these companies have to develop their own models. And this goes to the PDKs, right? Uh, they have to develop their own models, uh, everything of their, their own new PDKs, uh, aging models. My God, those are very difficult. So I think it's going to be a much longer node because the nanotubes, the ecosystem is not ready. It's harder to design to. TSM 3.3 is the easiest to design to because we've done this for so long. And it's mm-hmm. not a big change, right? It's the peak of the thing we've been doing for a while now. It is. It's got, um, you know, EUV went to many more layers than what 3 nanometer has. They actually scaled down the layers. It's a finely tuned process. It's the finest tuned process in the FinFET business, in the FinFET family. So it is going to be big. And people are going to stick with it because we have to learn how to design to nanotubes. It's a whole new design style. Mm-hmm. And is it going to be tough? I don't know because I don't know of any design starts. So I think N3 is going to last a little bit longer. Um, maybe people will skip N2. Who knows? Except for Apple, of course, and some of the big ones that need the performance. But um, <clears throat> yeah, I think N3 is going to be historic. Yeah. So basically, like three nanometers, kind of like analogous to what 28 nanometer was. That was the exactly. stop of an era. The next one's going to take time to get to, basically. Exactly. You know, going from 28 nanometer to FinFETs was a big deal. TSMC actually threw a huge amount of people at it. They had, I remember one time they had over 100 people at Apple, you know, trying to teach everybody how to design to FinFETs. And it wasn't an easy thing. And, you know, the first FinFET process at TSMC was was not the best. But um, we're so good at it now. And we're going to have to change. And let me tell you, the semiconductor guys don't like change. Mm-hmm. You know? It it just, it messes with our day. So Florida man writes in, how much do you think TSMC would bump up pricing for two nanometer if they were unchecked by a foundry with similar silicon density? Well, that's not how TSMC works. I know it's easy to say that, oh yeah, they're they're the only one, so they're going to bump up pricing. That's not the way it works. It goes off cost models and look at their margins. You know, they're very good at maintaining their margins. Um, but they haven't doubled their margins or the pandemic, you know, taking advantage of people. Uh, their costs have gone up, so their prices go up. But again, they're very customer-centric, and they don't do that type of uh, pricing games. I know at the board level and other things they do, but uh, TSMC doesn't. Just look at their, their finances. Just look at their reports. You know, they don't screw around with people. So basically... Yeah. Oh, well, yeah. So when you see prices going up, it's not really TSMC making them raise prices. Those companies decided to. Exactly. And, you know, TSMC is very front loaded, right? They have to build fabs. So, you know, they do have more costs in the front end mm-hmm. of depreciation, you know. Uh, uh, but, you know, like on their older nodes, like seven nanometer and 16 and 12 and 10 and whatever, I mean, they're just printing money there, right? So I don't see those costs going up uh, at all. But um, the new nodes, man, 
they're expensive, right? Those new fabs in Arizona. Whew. So we're gonna have to pay for those. Mm-hmm. QH Freddie writes in, how important are partners of TSMC like Amy and Apple when it comes to pushing packaging innovation? How much of the innovation that we've seen in packaging came directly from TSMC and how much of it just came from AMD or Apple coming up with this technology themselves? You know, uh, it's kind of funny is TSMC doesn't design chips. Right? They don't do packaging. They didn't. They have to learn it from their customers. And that's the strength of TSMC because they're learning design from 100 different customers in different markets. So they're able to take all those all that experience and do, do a summation of it and say, this is what we need. They did the same thing with packaging. Um, their packaging partner was Xilinx. That, that's who started packaging. In fact, I put up a, a blog on um, TSMC's uh, conference. I put up five, and one of them's a packaging blog, and it goes through the history of their packaging. And so you might want to check it out. I think it's uh, blog number three or blog number four of the conference. Um, but uh, they learned packaging from the Xilinx guys, and you know FPGAs were very big on packaging because they were putting multi-dye you know, a couple die and then a memory in, in, in one package. <clears throat> but, and then Apple took over and the Apple packaging, the Infos and the SOIC, I mean, it came right from Apple. And uh, Apple said, hey, we want to do this, this, and this. And TSMC said, okay, you know, here's how we can do it. And TSMC mm-hmm. invested a lot of money in packaging. And, you know, I said in my article that it was a little shock to me when I saw them going into packaging because it's a low margin business, you know, it's compared to wafers. And I'm, I'm like, well, why would they be doing this? This is crazy. But they're doing it to make their foundry sticky. Because once you go with packaging with TSMC, you can't leave TSMC. They're not going to mm-hmm. be packaging on other people's dye, right? <laughs> you, know, you can't take a wafer from Samsung to TSMC and do packaging, right? You can do the other way around, probably. But um, it makes the ecosystem even more sticky. So I think it's a brilliant move. And and they did, made some good announcements at the conference on packaging their 3D wafer fabric, uh, the 3D fabric and such. So, uh, you know, uh, I, I wrote about it. We're going to be writing more about it. Uh, but, um, you know, without Apple, they couldn't do this. Mm-hmm. So, like, maybe TSMC is the easiest to work with on this, and they are a good partner in applying it in more places. But it was Apple, it was AMD that came up with this stuff, and it was them, you know, mm-hmm. is what you're saying. And, and you know what happens is, is Apple, meeting with Apple is pretty funny, is they say, this is what we want, you know, and, and mm-hmm. then you ask for details, well, why? They're not going to tell you, right? <laughs> they just say, this is what we want, this is what we're doing, et cetera, et cetera. And then TSMC will come back and say, well, this is what we can do. And then Apple say, no, this is what we want. And then TSMC will come back and say, okay, this is what we can do. I mean, it's a huge collaboration, but uh, there's nobody that pushes you harder than, than Apple. You know, AMD's got a good relationship with them, but Apple writes the biggest checks, right? It's 20 to 25% of their revenue is Apple. Mm-hmm. And that's just huge. So Apple whole, totally changed the, the foundry game. And, uh, you know, a lot of people back then said, oh, Apple's going to ruin TSMC, blah, blah, blah. Uh, but, um, you know, I, I didn't buy it. I guess I missed that. I don't know who said that, but I guess I wouldn't have been paying attention to those arguments anyways. But this was 12 years ago. This was 12, 13 years ago. Oh, I remember fighting over, over this. Like, what are you talking about? So, but now TSMC has these strategic partnerships with multiple companies. So it's just getting stronger, right? Mm-hmm. Well, when it comes to the cost to make things, though, I have an interesting reader mail question here. Chris Rich writes in and asks, how much do you think AMD spent bringing Zen 4 to market? AMD have said that Zen 4C will be the same ISA as standard Zen 4, so presumably a different physical implementation of the same logical design. How expensive do you think it was to design 
Zen 4C next to Zen 4? Do you think this is a better approach than Intel's big little move where they're basically having to fully design two entirely different architectures in parallel, right? Because Zen 4, Zen 4C, what I've been told is it's the same design. It's just one of them is denser. They, 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 they go less for clock speed, go more for lower voltages, less space. And otherwise, they're basically the same IPC, same performance, but one's clocked lower and takes up less space. Like, how much more cost did it? Did it? Did it? Co- was it like they had to design two Zen fours, one and a half Zen fours? Like, how much more do you think it costs to have this different version? You know, we call these iterations, and um, you know, if you're doing a, a greenfield design, which is a, a fresh design, you know, brand new, um, that's the most expensive. Iterations mean you're doing, you know, a development of an existing design. And this is one of the reasons why Apple is so successful in their chips is they're doing iterations, right? It's the same SOC. They're just adding more, doing iterations. It's it's a much cheaper way to do business, right? If you can. And Apple can. Um, AMD is just doing an iteration. It's going to be much less expensive. I have no idea how much, but it's significant. But yeah, so it's not, it's not even remotely in the same ballpark. It's can't say if it's half as much, a quarter as much, but it's vastly cheaper than what Intel's doing, literally designing two architectures they then have to put together. It's an iteration, yeah. Okay. Um, let me see here. I know you have limited time, so I just want to like maybe throw out a couple more at the very end. So, all right. Carbon Cry writes in, what are your thoughts on the use of machine learning tools in semiconductor EDA with recent announcements from NVIDIA and Synopsys? How much will these impact chip design quality and development costs for a desired design performance? There's lots of interest on the big HPC leading edge use cases, but could these advances breathe new life to trailing nodes like 14 nanometer or even 20 nanometer, perhaps extending their useful lifetimes in many markets? Yeah, you know, um, so you, you hear the terms AI and machine learning, right? Mm-hmm. And A lot. We've been using machine learning for some time. And, you know, that's just learning from your experience. You know, you do a billion simulations and then you see which ones, you know, were relevant. And then next time you only have to do a half a billion simulations and stuff like that. So we've been doing machine learning and AI is fairly new, but AI is big in EDA and is big in manufacturing. TSMC talked about that. They're using AI to better optimize their their processes and their yield and such. And I can tell you, we write about it almost every week, AI in EDA tools. So Synopsys, you're right, that they are uh, leading the way, but uh, Cadence is, is doing the same thing and the rest of the guys are. It's a big part of, of semiconductor design because we do a lot of iterative things. You know, We do a lot of simulations and uh, you, know, you can actually tell, AI can look and say, hey, you, know, you don't have to do this many simulations or, hey, this is the part that's going to get difficult. You know, they can look back at all of our experiences, which we have you know, mm. years and years and say, hey, here's how you can do it better. So um, you know, it's in our routing tools, it's in all of our tools. So I think we're just starting, but uh, it is going to make a huge difference. I mean, uh, AI will be a big part of the semiconductor industry, both internally and as a driver externally. Uh, we're going to spend a lot of money on it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, let me know if I misunderstood you. You're basically saying, too, that like, you know, we've been making better and better and better tools. We've been using AI forever. Maybe now it's like getting to this you know, inflection point where it's making a much larger outsized impact. But our tools are, you're saying our tools are always getting better, are always better utilizing past nodes and so on and so forth. And it's just, it's just accelerating kind of. Yeah. You know, it's, it's iterative on one hand, but it's also, um, uh, disruptive, uh, innovation on the other. 
And, uh, you know, the thing is, is that um, doing chips is very difficult. And manufacturing semiconductors is really, really hard. I mean, you wouldn't believe it. Uh, you know, in 40 years, I've seen just the most incredible things. And, you know, I've been in meetings all over the world, and I'm never the smartest one in the meeting, not even close. And these guys, not only are they really bright, but they have egos, right? And you put those two together and you get results. So look at what we've done, you know, over the last 40 years. It's just absolutely incredible. AI is just another thing. I mean, we've been working on this for a while. The key to AI, in fact, I studied AI in college. I did AI programming, you know, 40 years ago. The, the issue with AI is you have to have a huge amount of processing power, huge. And we didn't have it, but we have it now. And we're developing even more. Mm. That's why people are building AI specific chips, because the more processing power you have, the more ability you have for AI. And so it, it's, it's an arms race. It really is for vendors and for countries and for everything. But um, you, you just wait. You know, the mobile phone revolutionized semiconductors, right? The biggest driver, the biggest disruptive was the smartphone. AI is the next one. Mm -hmm. All right. Final question. Cloud writes in, hi, Tom and Daniel. Jim Keller and Sam Zeloof recently launched a new semi-silicon manufacturing startup called Atomic Semi. Judging from Sam's previous work, they're likely gearing up to use electron beam lithography for maskless fabrication for low volume and prototype silicon. There have been a recent rise of open source CDA tools such as OpenLane and even open source PDKs for trailing edge processes such as Skywater 130. Over the coming years, could we see silicon design and manufacturing become as accessible to researchers and hobbyists as PCB design and manufacturing is today? Or is it too niche to ever become cheap or sustainable enough for this kind of more niche versions of this business to flourish? Thanks for all the hard work. Yeah, no, they're right. Uh, I have uh, looked to, looked at Atomic Semi, and in fact, uh, I have a podcast coming up with those guys. You know, the thing is, there's a lot of different companies that are doing this, and um, uh, eFabulous is one company, um, and Skywater actually enables this. Google enables this. You can get free test, uh, free wafer shuttles, uh, free tools. You know, you can actually develop uh, planar designs on open source tools. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the challenge you have is accountability. So, you know, with TSMC, TSMC hates open source tools because they're not silicon proven. There's no accountability. You know, if somebody's designing with Cadence, Synopsys, or um, season, Siemens, there's accountability, right? You know mm -hmm. it's going to be a good design. And, and if, if the design doesn't work, TSMC is out, out, of, out of luck. They're out of money, right? You know, they do these wafer shuttles, the, these... these uh, uh, test shuttles and then they you know start ramping up and and the design doesn't work then they they don't make any money right so <clears throat> this is a difficult thing but skywater can do this uh mature nodes can do this there are open source tools there's open source ip i mean risk five is one of the trending topics on semi wiki it's been like that for over a year that mm -hmm. is free ip you know that is an amazing thing and so you have tools you have ip and then you have cheap processes and such you can do this today. People are doing this. We've documented it. Um, it's not a big interest to me because what we do is we research the best design practices for leading edge semiconductors, right? We already know how to de design it, you know, 0.13, right? So, uh, you know, not my, not my market, but I have kept track of it. We have a wiki for open source tools. It's getting bigger every, every uh, year. Um, I don't think there's any problems. Uh, universities have been doing this for a while, mm -hmm. free shuttles and free tools and free ITP at universities. Um, but, you know, for the small startup companies, uh, yeah, 
it, it's out there already. But uh, Atomic Semi, I, I understand what they're trying to do. Yeah. It's a good deal. Okay. Well, you said you had a heart out. I'm trying to meet you there, but you've teased it a few times. I mean, at the end here, tell people where they can listen to this podcast where you will be talking to the Atomic Semi people. So it's called Semiconductor Insiders. It's carried by all the outlets. Um, we have about 40,000 listeners uh, thus far. And um, it's two years old. We publish one a week. And uh, we just did one last week with the VP at Intel Foundry. And that was, mm. that was quite popular. Um, uh, I forget who we have this week. Uh, oh, we have um, Quadric I.O. And so it's, it's a 20-minute discussion between me and uh, the CEO or technical guy. And, you know, we just cover the basics and talk about the technology. Uh, you know, it, it's available on semiwiki.com, of course, on the front page or any of your podcast services, Google, Apple, you know, Spotify, etc. And uh, it's inspired by you. I started it after I did your podcast. <laughs> well, you know, I mean... I've noticed that, it, and I'm sure you're inspiring other people yourself now as well. You get people talking, they talk to other people, then they talk to other people, and hopefully everyone gets smarter, or at least or at least they have less blind spots because they talk to someone and they're like, oh, oh, I didn't realize that, you know? And I think that's really the biggest asset to me was I have a YouTube channel and this at the same time is removing the blind spots. And I, I appreciate an expert like you coming on Broken Silicon, of course, to remove those blind spots for gamers who frankly, just like to argue online about this stuff for fun, but you make our arguments a little more grounded in reality and a little less silly. Um, so thanks for coming on. Remember, it's Broken Silicon, everybody. Subscribe on any podcast app. Give us a review. Subscribe to Moore's Laws on YouTube. Support us on Patreon. Ask us questions. Get this episode early and ad-free and exclusive podcasts as well. And uh, thanks for coming on again, Dan, and thanks for listening, everybody. This podcast was brought to you by the YouTube channel and website Moore's Laws Dead. Moore's Law is Dead and Broken Silicon are trademarks of their creator, Tom. That guy is me, and I am indeed the creator, editor, writer, and showrunner of Moore's Law is Dead podcast, videos, articles, and other media. However, it's not just me. Moore's Law is Dead is a team with Broken Silicon co-hosted by my brother Dan, audio editing by Gerard Cortez, renders being done by the industrial designer Jean-Philippe Clermont, and special assistance is also provided by Carmen Cry and Kerry Nosugad as well. Find all of our information at www.moreslawisdead.com on the about slash support page in the event you do want to hire me for consulting work, hire Gerard for audio work, hire Jean-Philippe for industrial design work, or you're interested in working with Carbon Cry or Kerry No Sugata as well. You can also find our long-term sponsors on that page if you want to show them some love for putting food on our tables. Or you can also mail us some love. You can send letters or hardware donations to the following address. Moore's Law is Dead, P.O. Box 60632 in Nashville, Tennessee, zip code 37206. Although, to be honest, the best way to show Moore's Laws Dead some love is to support us on Patreon. Patrons are what makes Moore's Laws Dead content truly possible. Every month, and really every day, depending on who you're talking about, me, Gerard, Dan, and John Philippe are working tirelessly to provide a steady stream of content that we could not keep doing unless we knew the work was possible without being reliant on sponsors dictating every little thing we put out. Don't get us wrong. We love our sponsors, but we love directly working for you, our fans, 
much more. If you have any extra money, even a couple free dollars a month, consider supporting us directly on Patreon. Those couple of monthly dollars will get you access to the exclusive podcast Die Shrink, voting on subjects of future podcast episodes, the ability to ask guests questions, and of course, access to the Moore's Laws Dead Discord full of like-minded people who I am sure would love to meet you. I am one of them. Additionally, higher tiers get access to early, ad-free episodes of Broken Silicon, the ability to ask questions in all Broken Silicon episodes and loose ends live streams ahead of the recording, and the entire back catalog of Moore's Law is Dead podcasts, in addition to having thanks in the credits of videos and podcasts depending on the tier with other perks available as well. And hey... If you cannot afford to support us directly every month, please do share Moore's Law is Dead videos and podcasts with friends and family and on social media and websites like Reddit. And give Broken Silicon a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or your preferred podcast app of choice. All of this does really help us so much. But like I said, this podcast would not be possible without it, the patrons directly providing predictable and reliable support every month. And so now it is time to give a personal thanks to the greatest of the fans. The following supporters are at the 10 gigahertz or higher supported levels. Brad Medlin, Drita Full, AV, Anthony Greffa, Greg Pataki, Mohan Rakwari, Brett Jones, Aaron Close, Little Germany, Dan Rauner, Daniel Hyde, Judgebird, Brian Riggleman. Dr. Foreman, Sam Miller, Deke, Josh Law, The Mechanical Philosopher, Joe Foote, SNES Chalmers, Tom Bailey, Greg T. Wanchuk, Andrew S., Frank Zielinski, Daniel D., MJV1, Eric Jackson, Christopher Crossan, Joshua L. Herrera, Valco Malev, The Boss Haas, Nicholas Buckner, Spantum G. Spantum, Jonathan, Lord Starstream, General Drips, Blake, Franco Frederick, Matthew Lazier, Jensen Wang, Nathan Mose, Alex Vega, Gregorius Hacker, Dominique Koch, Jake Dude, 23, Jake Martin Cameron, VentiCZ, HardForum.com, Original Ross, Zlicky, Lance Basser, David Cowden, Ricky Tan, Chris Frey Butler, GZ Ziggy, Sarcastro, Stefan Hart, David Sebastian, Mead and Pork Stew, Tim Ra, Luis Greya, Ian Clifford, Jesse Jaskowiak, Travis Gooding, Holden Mobley, Nanyan, Chris Rich, Steepest Learners, Mads, Utsu Taylor, Stefan Coates, Michael McGee, Chuck Glidden, Sammy Malas, Greg, AWS Danny, Patrick Grow, Ingwell Chief, Brett Summers, Milton, Stephen Dick, Tommy, John, Brucha, Mark Mitchell, McDaffy, AC, James Anderson, Marshall Pierce, Mark Raidmaker, Dave Schultz, 3DS Boy 08, Al Buma, Joseph A. Madrigal, Matthew Landavazo, Stefan Kolatic, Henry Zhang, Jensen N., Keith Moore, The Grid, Michelle Pell, D31337 Antics, Joseph Kelly, Earth Taurus, Hexapuma, Chrysantine, Joan Ferrier, RB Razor, Keith Moore, Michael Cozy, Ben, DNA Tech, Toka, John O'Shea, Royce Meyer, Charles Russell, Reginid Ari, Slushbot, Teague Autumn, Jackson Miller, JSMMH, Neith Razink, Mean Dean, Richard Yell, Andre Shocks, Game and Since Reagan, Jeff Seller, Jordan Simkovic, Loophole 35, Windstar, William Welpy, James I, Raider, Corey Leonard, Nell Lima, John Shin, Justin Bustle, John Swin, Austin Hagerty, Roger Davies, Shea Julian Leaked, Corey Capel, Evan Dingle, C2, John Iverson, Michael Aaron, The Eternal Dreamers, Jansen and Gima, Himsa Gung, Derek Limbing, James Mosher, Kiko Sato, and of course, thank you to Sahara for the music.